Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. The war on vaping continues unabated almost everywhere in the world, but nowhere is the fight for safer nicotine products more important than in the United States. While the U.S. is the largest market for nicotine vaping products and is home to many of the biggest brands, it's also ground zero for misinformation, public health petulance, and regulatory malevolence. Joining us today to dish on all that's wrong with the U.S. and its approach to vaping is Claude Bates, tobacco control policy expert and former director of Action on Smoking and Health UK. Clive, thanks again for coming back on the show. It's a pleasure, Brent. Great to be back. So Clive, it's good to see you too. We last had you on the show about a year ago, and I think it's fair to say a lot has happened since then, but it's all a little bit fuzzy to me. Am I mistaken to have a sense of deja vu? Everything changes, but essentially stays the same. Um, Particularly in the United States, uh, they've conceptualized vaping through the lens of a moral panic about youth vaping, uh, largely indifferent to the impacts on adults. Um, They're continuing to conflate vaping with smoking in terms of uh, risk and addictiveness, which is wrong. Uh, And basically, they're continuing to mislead the American public quite gratuitously uh, about the risks and benefits of vaping. And we, we've just had several iterations of that. We've seen um, FDA's uh, essentially de facto ban of e products. We've seen it bullying Juul. Um, and we've seen it, uh, the CDC spinning the latest youth vaping numbers uh, as if it's some kind of epidemic when uh, it really isn't. And the more nuanced understanding of the data tells us that basically things are all right. Yeah, and that data came out on October 6th. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released its annual National Youth Tobacco Survey for 2022, and it found that youth vaping rates have modestly increased since 2021, but are still substantially down from a few years ago. But you'd be hard-pressed to learn that uh, context reported anywhere in the mainstream media or from CDC. They're doubling down on the youth vaping epidemic. That's right. I mean, the headline number is slightly up. For high school students, it's 14.1% past 30-day vaping compared to 11.3%. But the thing you've got to remember is that the 2021 data was measured under pandemic conditions. A lot of the kids answered the questionnaire at home where they tend to be more guarded. Um, so it's it's possible that there hasn't even really been any change at all um, since the uh, low point measured in 2021. But you're quite right. The big story is that the peak uh, found in 2019, 27.5%, has come way down. Um, and that was what was driving the moral panic. But it turns out it was mostly froth. It was a fad. It was kids messing around, blowing rings at parties. It wasn't some massive addictive grip on the nation's youth. And in fact, what's really interesting about this data is if you home in on the regular use, you know, frequent use, people using more than 20 times, uh, 20 days in a, in a given month, those are the people who would mostly otherwise be smoking. And for them, the vaping is beneficial. So we've got this thing where not only do they inflate the vaping risks with young people, but they completely ignore the very likely benefits, which is that young people who would have otherwise smoked are now vaping instead and have effectively been diverted 
away from a much more harmful um, behavior. No credit given for that in that in any of the analysis by CDC or any of the regulatory approach of FDA. Completely wrong. Now, in a way, isn't there something corrupt about, I don't want to be, you know, hyperbolic here, but there's something corrupt when, when people who have power and are in charge of, you know, affecting the culture, and then when they are successful in affecting the culture, if they don't acknowledge that effect, then I, I, I mean, that's corrupt. It's, I don't know what the right word for it is, but it's certainly not good practice. First of all, CDC, FDA, and so on should be um, honest brokers with data. The data should come out and they should do everything they can to possibly understand it, including the nuances, like some of the kids who would have otherwise have been smoking might now be vaping. You never hear them give any credence to that idea at all, though it's obvious in the data. Um, so they should be presenting a more nuanced package of facts. The, the announcement on the 6th of October is just like all the other previous ones. They announced the vaping data without announcing the smoking data. So you're only getting a partial picture. And you're only getting a partial picture because that's the part of the picture they want to emphasize on with their youth vaping epidemic narrative. Now, look. You could say, well, everyone should just be neutral, just put the data out there, and it's wrong for public health bodies to do advocacy, okay? I'm not sure that's totally true in all cases. So if, you, if you're a public health body and you're trying to, I don't know, reduce exposure to asbestos in homes, or you're trying to control a polio epidemic, you do things to change people's behavior. But in this case, they're trying to do things to change people's behavior that actually make the problem worse. They're actually trying to push an abstinence-only agenda when we know that that will be less effective than a harm reduction agenda for many of the adult smokers and some of the youth smokers. So it's, it's not only are they being uh, partial and biased and engaging in advocacy, they're gauging in the wrong kind of advocacy that will bring about the wrong results, completely misguided. I agree with you. It strikes me as very simple. If you're trying to say, go in and clean up a neighborhood, provide services for people in low income, so low income housing and better food and better healthcare, when you bring those services in and if you achieve that goal, say a reduction of 50% in the cases of people who step on rusty nails, well, you're going to want to take credit for that. And they just don't seem to want to take, they can't pat, pat themselves on their own back and say, you know, we're doing a good job here. What this is, is a reflex uh, rejection of innovation. And very, very common in public bodies is innovation is conceptualized as a threat, as an in incoming challenge Part, partly to the status quo in policy terms, but also partly to the range of vested interests who've grown kind of fat on opposing the, uh, the, the sort of incumbent technology. So I think that that's the big story here, is that these agencies um, and the enormous complex of interests that surround them, whether it's the academics, uh, the foundations, the activist organizations, and frankly, the media are bought in 
to a particular model here that rejects innovation and constantly denies the benefits of this, even though it's obvious to see in the case of individuals uh, who, tell, who, as you know, give very compelling testimony about what it's done for them, but it's also there in the data about what's happening at population level and what's actually going on in the marketplace. Just in denial about it, Brent. The CDC statement uh, around the youth survey, this study shows that our nation's youth continue to be enticed and hooked by an expanding variety of e-cigarette brands delivering flavored nicotine. And the FDA says, and this is actually uh, Commissioner Robert Califf said, it's clear that we still have a serious public health problem that threatens the years of progress we have made combating youth tobacco product use said the commissioner. We cannot and will not let our guard down on this issue. Where to start with that? I mean, there's so much wrong with it. For, for, first of all, my guess is that vaping is net beneficial to youth. Leave aside all the adults, net beneficial to youth because it's diverting young people away from um, smoking. Um, and it's a much lower risk behavior. But remember, we're talking, they're talking here You've got to put vaping in the context of all the other youth risk behaviors, like getting blind drunk, getting in a car and driving, carrying knives and guns, fighting, uh, the effect that uh, underage sex and uh, teenage pregnancy has on people, um, the, the opioid crisis, the crisis in illicit drugs. I mean, if you, if you draw up, if you're a parent with, with teenagers and you go through the list of all the things that keep you worried about a 14 or 15-year-old, other than the hype that's been in the newspaper, there's no reason to worry that much about vaping. It just isn't that dangerous compared to all the other things going on in kids' lives. You know, and it's not just the substance use, it's the bullying, the online harassment, the mental health problems, um, weird stuff to do with social media and what kids are exposed to now. Those are the things that would keep me awake at night, not vaping. I'd be glad if vaping was diverting my teenager away from smoking. And I wouldn't be that bothered if they were messing around with vapes at parties. There's so much more to be worried about and to put in context with the teenage, so-called teenage vaping epidemic. And I think, you know, King and uh, Caleb say these things from, you know, FDA. But you've got to bear in mind that Let's take cannabis. For the past 25 years, past 30-day cannabis use has been over 20% in the United States at 12th grade level, that's sort of you know, 17, 18-year-olds. Daily use has been about 5%. Now, where's the giant moral panic about that? And you know, to be clear, I'm not calling for a moral panic about it. I'm calling <clears throat> for some kind of equivalence in the maturity of response to youth risk behaviors. In other words, don't lose your mind over something that is relatively trivial in risk terms and not that large as a major effect in young people's lives. Far more kids die in road traffic accidents through drinking than will ever be harmed by vaping. Clive, one of the, I would say arguably of pretty influential anti-vaping group is called PAVE which is the Parents Against Vaping e-cigarettes. And Meredith Berkman is one of the co-founders. And I, we've got a clip 
uh, from her from the very day that the CDC released the National Youth Tobacco Survey data. And lo and behold, there's the CDC on a Zoom call with a couple of their key partners strategizing about how to spin this data in the public workplace or in the public. Let's uh, let's have a quick listen here. If I could, I just have one more quick question because you have made it really clear that this data, as the same with last year's data, is not to be perceived as any kind of a trend because the methodology is different and because of the logistical difficulties of um, the pandemic. Um, and so how then do we, I won't say quantify because we can quantify the raise over last year, um, but when these two years are meant to be on their own and then there is a significant rise from this year over last year how should we be messaging that or thinking about that when we know that it's not that this these two data sets are not comparable to what came before so i think the bottom line here is that there are still too many kids using e-cigarettes uh, the epidemic is far from over and our work is far from done. We still have 2.55 million youth uh, who are currently using e-cigarettes and most of them, 85%, are using flavored products. Had you seen any of this content coming out of this call and what do you think of it? I have seen the call and frankly, I was appalled. Um, I'm amazed that a government public health agency acts in that way um, with a, a select band of activists, really, uh, who, you know, you know, the um, parents against vaping cigarettes, uh, are, you know, I've heard them called the Potemkin parents, uh, just kind of front organization, really, for uh, you know, designed to create an emotive response and to fuel the moral panic. But they're PR professionals, basically, engaged in an expensive campaign against vaping. And they're totally connected to, you know, the key politicians that are in opposition. Yeah, I mean, they're anything but just ordinary, you know, um, everyday mothers uh, <laughs> at work here. They're, they are, as I say, it's a professional PR operation. And, of course... Um, you know, Meredith Berkman there is asking a question about how to spin the data so that we can carry on using the emotive youth vaping epidemic line. And of course, CDC comes right back at it with it. Well, of course you can. You know, uh, we have, uh, you know, we've established the moral panic uh, narrative and we're, we're not going to stop here. So I, I thought I thought it was disgraceful. I, I think the fact that the, they were handpicking these, um, you know, activist groups, many of them Bloomberg funded, to get this sort of private briefing on the numbers was disgraceful. Frankly, everybody has an interest in this, and more interest, frankly, than you know the, the consumers and the small businesses involved are bigger and more important stakeholders in this data than Meredith Bergman and the other activist groups. So I don't, I don't see why they're getting privileged access over the small business associations or the consumers associations, or frankly, public health experts, of whom there are many in the United States who support um, the tobacco harm reduction philosophy, but don't have an enormous 
highly funded foghorn type voice to blast away uh, anti-vaping propaganda. Um, and I, 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 again, I thought the CDC people carried themselves appallingly. You know, they, they, they should be there being neutral, honest brokers of information here, displaying curiosity about the data and trying to provide insight into what's going on uh, rather than just feeding propaganda. As I mean, she said at the end there, 86% of the, the products were flavored. Of course they are. They're flavored products. Everybody knows that. What, 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 she, what, what she's doing there is trying to campaign for a flavor ban. But this is, it's a sort of ludicrous position because the kids aren't vaping. You know, the kids aren't using nicotine because of flavors. Kids have always used nicotine in some form or other, whether it's flavored or not. Um, so I think, I think they're just missing the point here, and they're not doing what a proper public agency should do, particularly when it releases data, which it should release all the data, and it should provide as much insight into the subtleties and nuances in the data as it can, and not just pull out a few handy propaganda lines to stoke up a moral panic about uh, an imaginary youth vaping epidemic. Now, I wonder what that says then about CDC's handling of the so-called vaping-related lung illness, Evali, because that came out of the CDC when it launched in August of 2019, it launched as a PR campaign with full national media. I can't imagine that there wasn't a bunch of work going on by the CDC's messaging team prior to its launch. Look, I mean, it was information black ops, basically. They, they, um, they knew or they should have known early in that uh, outbreak of you know, terrible lung disease, uh, they should have known around August that nicotine vaping was not implicated. But they went straight into the merchant of doubt mode, worthy of the worst of the tobacco industry in the 1970s. They kept the doubt alive. They just kept saying, well, some people say they didn't use cannabis, uh, THC vape. Some people say that they use nicotine only. Yet we know perfectly well that people lie their heads off about illicit drug use. For obvious reasons, they get in trouble with the police, their employer, their college, their parents. You know, it is obvious that people's own personal testimony can't be relied on by what they were doing. And once they discovered that the um, dangerous agent was vitamin E acetate, a thickener, a cutting agent that could only be used in uh, cannabis oils and can't be used in nicotine, that should have been it, over. Um, once you've discovered that, then nicotine cannot have been the cause. We also know that the epidemic disappeared once that cause had been identified without anybody doing anything to change nicotine vapes. Nobody did a thing. And yet the epidemic of, so-called epidemic of uh, lung injuries was gone by around February with a few straggling cases related to products that were still in the supply chain. That is enough epidemiology to tell you that nicotine wasn't involved. But even now, right up to today, here and now, CDC still won't admit what's obvious. They still won't change the name. 
FDA still allows this myth to be perpetrated, and they all collude in the tacit misinformation operation. That claim about vaping causing lung injuries has lingered on websites of the big health organizations, just not been carefully tidied up and put away. It's just been left to linger, creating endless doubt. And I, I review a lot of the papers that come out each, uh, each week. And I can tell you, each week, there's a couple, two, three, maybe five papers which perpetrate the myth that nicotine vaping was somehow implicated in Nivali when it's perfectly clear it was not and could not have been. And to your point there, Clive, take a look at this. This is Yale Medicine. This is an active uh, microsite talking about what is Evali? What are the symptoms of Evali? What are the causes of Evali? What are the risks of Evali? How is Evali diagnosed? What is the treatment for Evali? What is the outlook for somebody with Evali? And this is Yale. And it certainly clearly feels like though this, you know, Evali is a going concern. Yeah, well, um, Yale, the, some of the research, I damn the entire institution, of course, but some of the, some of the researchers at, at Yale were, you know, prime vectors of misinformation about this. Um, it was shameless. I mean, I've no doubt they believed it, but there is no reason for anybody now professionally engaged in this field still to be saying these sort of things and websites like theirs still to be saying. It is absolutely clear that nicotine wasn't involved, not just not just what they do say, which is, well, some of the cases might have been or... You know, the, the, you know, most of the cases were THC. No, it's much clearer than that. Nicotine vaping was not implicated in the 2019 outbreak of lung injuries caused by vaping in the United States. That was down to a thickener added to THC vapes. It's totally clear. And no one professionally engaged, whether it's CDC or an academic, should still be implying that it was. I bring this up so strongly besides all of the other reasons is that, you know, we've done a lot of coverage globally in this year. We saw each other actually last in Warsaw, Poland for GFN 2022. And I'm shocked by how many conversations I have with uh, vaping activists all around the world from South Asia, Africa, Europe, and they all tell me that their problems in their region comes from a valley the misinformation around a valley, what that's doing in their markets um, is the biggest issue. And so, you know, what happens in the U.S. doesn't just stay in the U.S. That misinformation has been exported across the entire world. It's a, an appalling information uh, export from the United States. But it's, the thing is, it's been taken up willingly by the anti-vaping crusaders around the world, many of whom are funded from the United States, remember. So if you take uh, groups like the Union, uh, even WHO takes a fat slug of money from Bloomberg, funnily enough, WHO's questionnaire on e-cigarettes refers to Ivali as if, as if it's a thing. Uh, a, technical, uh, a technical report produced for WHO by US researchers very clearly laid uh, Ivali at the door of nicotine vaping. It was in a, um, a tobacco regulation special publication. Now, you know, so it's, it's, not, it's not just that the U.S. pushes out 
the propaganda, it, first of all, there are willing recipients of that propaganda all around the world. And then some of them are funded to receive propaganda by US entities like Bloomberg Philanthropies. So as I, I like to see it as a complex of interests, which has its kind of focal point in the big agencies, the research institutions and universities, NIH on the science side in, in the US, and then Bloomberg Philanthropies and its complex of uh, organizations, Campaign for Tobacco Free Kids, the Union, Vital Strategies, and so on, were all funded with Bloomberg money, but spreading this stuff out around the world. And I just saw this week, um, Campaign for Tobacco Free Kids are holding a meeting for 25 activists from 17 countries in Istanbul, in Turkey. Now, what do you think they're learning? They're, they're, not, they're not going to be taking a balanced view of you know, adults versus youth, the proper nuanced harm, harm reduction approach to this. They're going to be learning abstinence-only propaganda and how to campaign for prohibitions because that's what that complex does. So Clive, if you're a researcher who's had plenty of years history and track record in tobacco control research, and you come of the mind that there is something interesting that should be studied with regard to nicotine, uh, you know, vaping products, safer nicotine products, you embark on that research and you could find that a good chunk of your career has been not ruined, but negated. You might find yourself not invited to meetings anymore and so forth. Contrast that with nobody seems to have a problem that private money is coming from a billionaire and flooding into, um, you know, a nonprofit public realm and funding a political agenda. Well, uh, <laughs> you're opening a gigantic can of worms here, Brent, over the whole question of uh, conflicts of interest. Because um, I think the, the first thing is a lot of people in this field just believe in their own virtue uh, and ignore their own gigantic conflicts of interest. So if you're, if you're taking from any, any part of the Bloomberg complex, you have to reckon with the fact that Mike Bloomberg has some very strong opinions on this, none of which has any real support in evidence, but represents his own, you know, the feeling in his gut or, you know, what his own preferences are as an extremely rich man who I suspect doesn't really know anybody in the affected population. Um, but he has his views and he spends his money and his money comes with his views. And the idea that you're not compromised by that, that you just sort of rise above that and, you know, you'll see all these statements saying, well, you know, the funder had no role in this. It's nonsense. They are massively conflicted. Then, you, then there's another form of conflict here, which, which is the entire tobacco control enterprise. And, you know, thousands of people are employed in that, whether in universities as researchers, public health agencies as health professionals or stop smoking clinics or policy groups or whatever. It's, it's thousands of people are actually threatened. You know, they're, they're, their whole livelihood depends on there being harm. That there's no point in having tobacco control if there's no harm. You know, it'd be like having coffee control. We don't have thousands of people worldwide trying to control the use of coffee and caffeine because we don't regard it as particularly harmful. So if, 
innovators come along with new products that don't actually cause that much harm, that's a really profound threat to your livelihood, to your institution, to your university department, to your grants, to your conferences, to your international travel, to everything that's made your career what it is so far. And for some reason, we ignore that when, when we consider the conflicts of interest that academics have or activists have in this. We, we think of it only as, well, do you get money from big tobacco or a vaping company or something? But actually, these people are deeply conflicted by the whole concept of safer nicotine products because it basically potentially renders them irrelevant. They become pointless in a world where nicotine is relatively safe to use. Clive, let's jump to the FDA. I know that's one of your favorite agencies to talk about. There's certainly been a lot going on or not. It's hard to say. They've banned products. Uh, they've denied marketing authorization. They've stayed those denials. What do you think about what's going on at, at the FDA? Chaotic hot mess is probably the best way to describe what's going on there. It's in, in, in no sense would any regulator or government, you know, going back to 2016 when they deemed e-cigarettes as part of the, under their jurisdiction and under the control of the Tobacco Control Act, if you'd, if you'd been able to say, well, this is the mess we'd be in in 2022, no one would have let them proceed. No one could possibly want this kind of mess. And, you know, you have to compare and contrast with the European Union, where we have an extremely simple system. Um, you know, you, a typical European Union country will have three or 4,000 vaping products on the market, competing successfully with cigarettes. Um, the sky hasn't fallen in, there aren't people dropping dead, and we don't have a youth uh, vaping epidemic or a moral panic uh, about what is actually a relatively innocuous um, youth risk behavior. Now that may change partly because of propaganda from the United States spreading across the Atlantic. But for now, we actually have quite a sensible proportionate regime. It has some DAF standards in it, which have been unfortunately copied in Canada. Um, but a, 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 a notification regime and standards regime is vastly superior to an authorization and product by product justification regime, which the FDA operates terribly. And the reason is, and it's very evident, is that as soon as you have an authorization regime, somebody has to say yes. The FDA has to actually stand up and approve something. And that makes them a victim of incredible political pressure, advocacy from advocacy groups, pressure from academics, um, pressure from Congress um, to do something to fix the problem. Um, and therefore, they're in a state of perpetual paralysis about saying yes to anything, finding it much easier to say no to everything, regardless of the consequences. Because when they say yes to something, they're held accountable for that. When they say no to something, they're not accountable for the benefits that we lose because those benefits are invisible. So there's a weird risk-averse asymmetry in the way FDA conducts itself because it has this authorization regime and it has to take responsibility for these decisions when it approves something, 
but not when it doesn't. Wow, that's actually extremely interesting, Clive. I've not heard it framed that way before, but you're right. In Canada, as an example, they haven't gone through a process of stamping of approval on all the different devices out there and each individual liquid. It was just assumed the industry is there. Now, how do we best regulate uh, it and how do we best protect the public? Whereas an authorization regime, oh, yeah, I mean, how could that ever work in that environment? I mean, it's it's ludicrous. I mean, the, the, the thinking behind this, if as soon as you're authorizing something on a product-by-product product basis, you can only feasibly cope with a few hundred or a few thousand at most products, okay? Now, when they, when they did their regulatory impact analysis back in 2016, they, es they estimated, I think, an upper limit of about 450 devices and 2,500 flavors. What happened? They got six million applications, you know, three orders of magnitude wrong, out by a factor of a thousand. Now, how ridiculous is that? Um, so so they, they basically designed a regulatory system that was for a market that doesn't exist, applied it to the market that does exist, and unsurprisingly, everything fell apart. So they had to use all these legally suspect shortcuts like fatal floor analysis or just denying everything um, up front, um, setting incredibly high bars for evidence with, for which there is absolutely no equivalent for cigarettes, setting really high bars. You've got to do a randomized control trial or a cohort study, which is ludicrous for a small vaping company. They can't do that. And anyway, nobody sticks to using these products for months on end anyway. They're always choosing a range of products and changing all the time as new things come out and their curiosity is peaked. So they've set up a regulatory system that bears no relation to the behavior and the market that actually exists. And they've ignored all the suggestions for making it better. So that's why they're in a mess. There's there's hundreds of products or thousands of products on the market that are basically illegal. There's thousands of products that have never asked even to be approved. There's products to be approved but have been rejected. There's products that have been rejected and are now in court. And there's a few products, 23 at most, accounting for about 3% of the market that have actually had FDA's blessing. And they're all, you know, essentially the same kind of product tobacco-flavored, quite boring, quite unappealing products that don't actually do it for most papers. So they're, they're, in a, they're in a mess of their own making. It's hard to see how they can extract themselves or whether they've got the political will to do that because they're just going in deeper and doubling down on the mistakes they keep making. I think it's really important what you just mentioned, and it goes to a question that I've got, is that it seems to me and to others, that vaping in the U.S. has become too big to fail. The product, how would they remove these products from the market? Well, once you've got 12 million users, what do you say to them? You know, you, you're going to go back to smoking. I mean, like, take, take Juul, okay? They, you know, in a despicably, um, uh, it's hard to describe it. In, in what I think is a, a, a despicable and vindictive move, They've denied Juul's application, but it's basically excellent vaping product. 
Okay, and this is this is because they have to serve up some political red meat to Congress. Caliph has met with Congress, has been told that he's not doing a good enough job. So they've sent they've gone down to he sent a message down to the lab saying, find me something wrong with his jewel. Um, I want it off the market. They've done that. But what happens to the three million people who use and like jewel? What 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 message are they getting? that this is a dangerous product, because that's not what the science says, uh, that they shouldn't be vaping. Um, there's thousands of cigarette products going to stay on the market and jewels going to come off. So what does that tell you about the relative risk? FDA ludicrously has even a- approved through the PMTA process a cigarette and allowed ridiculous claims to be made about it. So if you've got a situation where... FDA can authorize a cigarette product, a very low nicotine um, 22nd century product, but deny Juul. Basically, what that tells you is that under the Act, FDA can do whatever it likes. Between those two extremes, there is so much latitude, it can approve or deny whatever it likes. And that is a very dangerous situation for an organization that is facing and driven by political pressure from Congress, activists, the Bloomberg complex, and motivated academics who want to find harm and need only have a job because they have to find something harmful and worth regulating. It seems that that side of this debate, if I put it nicely, has allowed our public institutions and vital public health agencies to become affected by dogma around tobacco control? To some extent, I think they've always been there. They've always had an abstinence-only, um, uh, you know, almost prohibitionist approach to this. Um, I, don't, I don't think they've ever really thought about it in a proper public health way in which you are trying to manage a large-scale phenomenon in society. You know, you've got you know, 30 to 40 Americans smoking, maybe 12, 40 million Americans smoking, maybe 12 million vaping. That's a large number of people engaged in this behavior. Now, you can't just wish that away. What you're trying to do is contain the burden of disease and premature death that is caused by that. And you can do that with harm reduction methods far more easily than you can just by wagging your finger at everyone and telling them to stop. Um, Because we know that that doesn't work that well. And we now have good evidence that harm reduction approaches do work well, particularly with those most at risk, which are those who don't even want to quit, don't even want to try. You know, you've got to remember all the smoking cessation meds are tried on people who say they want to quit. Okay, now they're already beyond the first hurdle of giving up smoking because they have the motivation to quit and join a trial. The thing is, the really at risk people are the people who say, no, I want to smoke for the rest of my life. I like it. And that's where harm reduction approaches can do something because you're replacing something they like potentially with something else they like. Hopefully they like a bit more, but doesn't kill them. And that's a completely different proposition to the smoking cessation medical approach, which is favored by CDC and FDA. I sure would like to say to all the Democratic politicians and Republican politicians over the last 60, 70, 80 years who were good old boys 
taking tobacco money and happy to support the tobacco industry, they owe people like me a future without combustion. But yet there seems to be no political support for, you know, for safer alternative nicotine. Well, I think the most, um, you know, the most reprehensible group here is the Democrats. They, they, have been, they have been jacking up the pressure on FDA. They have been participating in the youth vaping epidemic moral panic narrative at a very senior level. Yet, if you wanted to address health inequalities, the welfare of disadvantaged people, people who are homeless, um, who've had a difficult life, who have substance use problems, who are unemployed, who are, have been cast aside as the Rust Belt formed and there was deindustrialization. If you're concerned about people who live lives of despair, there is something you can do here, and that is to help them to switch from smoking to vaping, which gives them an immediate payback in the pocketbook, which is good for putting food on the family table and their self-respect, and then in terms of their health and immediate well-being. Now, I don't really see why the Republican, uh, sorry, why the Democrats haven't seized the opportunity here to do something really serious about health inequalities and actually push the tobacco harm reduction line as a tobacco control policy that would make huge inroads into what should be their natural client group, their natural electorate. But I'm afraid to say, I'm not I don't study American politics that closely, but it looks like they've left all of those people behind and have moved on to more sort of elitist causes, um, you know, with the same mindset that Bloomberg has, without thinking about the actual well-being of the poorest, most disadvantaged people in society who would traditionally look to the Democrats for help. Look, there's no doubt about it. This big tobacco were incredibly dishonest, uh, disreputable, and they earned their bad reputation. They covered up the smoking and cancer risk, um, smoking and addiction risk, and they were absolutely shameless, no doubt about it. But Brent, I have to say, some of the things that we're seeing now from supposedly reputable um, organizations are so outrageous, they put the tobacco industry in the shade. And I, I think, to be honest, I think it's because these people are used to feeling that they're righteous, they can get away with anything. Um, look at the Ivali case. It's an outrage that that has been used as a, a, a propaganda tool uh, against vaping. And what, what we had in the past was tobacco, the tobacco industry being dishonest about the risks of smoking in order to encourage people to continue to use cigarettes. Now what we have is the public health community being dishonest about the risks of vaping with the effect that will really continue to encourage the use of cigarettes. It's just, the effect is just the same. The morality is worse in my view. And the reason it's worse is that people never really trusted the tobacco industry to start with. Whereas these people, CDC, the Bloomberg groups, um, American cancer, American lung, American heart, they come with a huge endowment of trust, which I believe they are abusing and squandering 
through their anti-vaping, anti-tobacco harm reduction campaigns in a way that will mislead people into harming themselves by smoking more uh, and smoking for longer when they have perfectly good smoke-free alternatives available to them now. So I, I, I don't like the comparison with the tobacco industry because I think some of these people are now worse than the tobacco industry ever was.